The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Ms. Surili Sutaria Patel. Ms. Patel is the Deputy Director for the Center for Public Health Policy at the American Public Health Association. She holds a master's degree from Georgetown University in the field of biomedical science policy and advocacy. Her former work involved environmental health policy in particular, but at APHA today, she works towards mapping the gap between communities, meaning where we live, work, play, and learn, and our collective health. And she works towards bringing health equity and environmental justice for all. She most recently was lead author of a white paper titled Building a Robust Environmental Health System, which I hope we'll have time to dive into. This year's American Public Health Association's meeting takes place in Atlanta from November 4th through the 8th, and the theme is Creating the Healthiest Nation, Climate Changes Health. And in fact, Climate Changes Health has been the focus for the entire year of 2017 for APHA. So welcome, Cerule. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Well, I always am curious to know how people got to where they are. What was it that led you to be curious about environmental health and dedicate your work to public health? I actually accidentally fell into the field of environmental health. I found it fascinating, the connection, the relationship between people, their communities, and the environments in which they live, in which they play and work. And all those factors impact your health, impact your spirit and well-being, and that's why I'm here. And there's so many different facets of environmental health, from food safety all the way through emergency preparedness and response to infectious disease, et cetera, and that just all plays a huge role in the way we can attain good health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's so easy to take our public health institutions for granted And when you consider things like how easy it is to turn on the tap and have clean running water, and we take it for granted until we don't have it anymore. And I think with the recent environmental catastrophes that we've seen with the hurricanes in the southeastern part of the United States, we really stop in our tracks and we say, whoa, this is going to impact people's health from a personal perspective, a community perspective. And how on earth are we going to restore the farmland and our water systems that have been impacted by these terrible storms? That's absolutely right. It's going to take a long time before recovery sets in, and even the intermediate steps to get there, helping those communities and those families who need immediate assistance, such as safe drinking water, making sure that their homes are dry so that mold doesn't build up, in their floors, carpets, and walls. It takes so much longer for that standing water to go away so that those aren't breeding grounds for mosquitoes. And then that land can be, again, reused for growing crops mm-hmm. and, and anything else to help with the sustenance. And who is monitoring? Let's take a look at the floodwaters, for example. 
Who is responsible for monitoring floodwaters for any number of contaminants? That's typically the public health department. The state and local health departments have environmental health departments that look into safe water, drinking, recreational, and otherwise. And then also many states have companion departments like departments of environmental quality that also look into that as well. I know that a lot of these departments have faced budget cuts over the past few years, and that must make it even more difficult for them to get a hold of the situation and put in place corrective action. It does. It makes it trickier. What we're seeing is diminishing resources, financial, and also as a result, full-time employees who are highly trained and skilled in this area. Unfortunately, we can't just take anyone off the street and ask them to test for water quality or any of these essential environmental health services. And so it's really important that we have a well-trained and highly skilled workforce behind this. Mm-hmm. As a dietitian, I remember learning about how water was our most critical nutrient. And I'm very concerned about people having safe water at the tap and how these storms have impacted that. Do you have any information to share with us about how likely it is for people's water to be contaminated, how long it takes for water systems to be reinstituted so that people can feel comfortable turning the tap on? And where do they go to find out if they have safe water? Those are all really great questions. The likelihood is pretty high, especially with all the standing water, that there could be a contamination. And as of now, it's a little too early to tell. So it's a wait-and-see game. But with the water, the sewage mixing, there's so many different ways in which water can get contaminated, drinking water, that is, can get contaminated. And then you add the added layer of the potential of lead exposure through your drinking water. This is a crisis we're facing across the country. And as far as where to go, when it's safe, and how do you know who to trust, it's really your health department. They should be issuing warnings or okays, and the local media should also be helping with disseminating that information. Mm-hmm. Now, I know the American Public Health Association has put out several fact sheets on climate change and related very closely to water, of course, is this issue of extreme heat. And it's all well and good if you can go into a safe place and turn on your air conditioner, but when power has been disrupted and it's hot on top of that, we worry about dehydration as well as food spoilage. I can only imagine people going back into their homes after a disaster and finding that you know they've got a packed freezer or refrigerator and all of that food now has to be disposed of in an already compromised situation where the community may not have all of their utilities up and running. What should people do? In that devastating situation, I think first and foremost, people should be very aware that the food that may have spoiled in their refrigerators, pantries should be discarded and not, there's no, the risk of eating it is greater than not. And if that's the case, then um, turning to packaged food, unfortunately, which is kind of the conundrum here, you know, we advocate for folks eating fresh, nutritious, locally sourced foods, but in instances like this, it's just difficult. And so you want to go to those canned beans and, and those veggies that you can get that aren't able to spoil because of lack of power. Right. What about food recommendations in terms of how to protect ourselves against high heat? Are there some foods that are 
protective, perhaps. I know I remember when we had floods in my community, we would tell people that to avoid foods that are super high in sodium, to make sure that any canned or packaged foods that might have been exposed to flood waters are very carefully examined, such as canned foods, if there were any kind of small holes that developed, if there's any sort of swelling in the cans that would indicate spoilage. Do we have recommendations in terms of helping people know what is safe after disaster? Yes, those are all really important points. Making sure that, you know, you examine any food that you consume, especially in these types of events. We also encourage lots of liquids, so especially to combat dehydration. So if you have some non-spoiled fruits, and certainly try to consume those before they do spoil. That also offer vitamins and nutrients, but also help with dehydration. Mm-hmm. I think the problem has always been this big question of, has the food been exposed to contaminated water? I remember, you know, where people would have even home canned foods and the risk of having any kind of bacterial or viral contaminants entering that food was always a high risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the cantaloupe outbreak that happened several years ago was because of the outside of the cantaloupe. They weren't washed properly. And so that's always a risk. So whether it's a protected food like that or a canned food prepackaged, washing it is always a concern when it's, when there's contaminated drinking water. And so that's always going back to your sources of advisories, such as local media or the health department to check on them to see when it's safe to use the water. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I went through all of the different months that have led up to the end of the year with regard to the whole climate change and how there are so many issues that we're being faced with today. And in July, the focus was on food safety and security. And what I thought was so interesting is that I believe you may have been the author of this piece, but you know we expect climate change to threaten food production and crop yields. But there are so many more issues to anticipate. For example, the nutritional value of some food is declining because of rising temperatures, changing climate, and higher carbon dioxide levels in the air decrease the amount of zinc, iron, protein, and other nutrients in the crops. I had no idea. I think it's fascinating to see how climate change affects nutritional quality of food. Absolutely, and we're still learning more about this, but the nutritional value when you have a safe environment is definitely going to be more dense and rich. And when you have a toxic environment, naturally, just like how our health declines, so does the health of our food. And so we have to think of it as hand in hand. And it's really almost scary, and I think that's the biggest threat to climate change is not knowing all the things that could happen. I think scientists are still uncovering and Americans are still learning how climate change is going to to impact us and our health and everything we do around it. So everything from the type of food we consume because it's less nutritious all the way to how it's sourced and packaged and et cetera. So it's it's a long, convoluted almost <laughs> list of things that climate change brings to our table. Yeah. Well, you wrote a great piece in July titled The Human Cost of the Food We Eat, and you go through some of the issues that we might not be thinking about such as with extreme heat comes more illness and death among farm workers. And for most of us, we are so removed from the source of our food, and we don't really understand some of the harsh conditions that farm workers face. 
So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what protections might be available to the farm workers and how we as citizens and consumers can help influence that tragic situation. Sure. So farm workers being exposed to long, hot days are often the victim of heat injuries and illness. And it can come from direct sunlight, humidity, and all that, the work that they're doing. So their body is sweating a lot more and the equipment that they use. And so often what happens more than we like to think is heat exhaustion or heat stroke. And things that we could do, and you're right, we are extremely removed from the farming process or the animal process. So what we could do is we can reach out to our representatives and talk to them about safer and more climate and agriculture solutions in terms of policies and regulations. And we can pick up the phone and call our congressmen or congresswomen to talk to them about how important these issues are to us when they are making these decisions on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. I want to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Ms. Surili Sutaria Patel, the Deputy Director for the Center for Public Health Policy at the American Public Health Association. I really like the fact that your degree is looking at both the public health aspects of our environment as well as advocacy. And I appreciate your call to those of us listening to say, you know, pick up the phone, get to know your representatives. They represent us. They are setting policy. But language has been such a difficult difficult issue for us moving forward. Are there ways to talk about climate change that we can all come around You know, we can talk about these disasters, I suppose, but there are some people who really believe that climate change is not an issue. And so how do we bridge that gap and help people see the changes that are happening around us and how they might impact us so that we can be more effective communicators with our representatives? Now, that's something that we grapple with almost every day at APHA. And there's two ways of thinking about this. One you got to call climate change climate change. you got to call it what it is, right? Which is why after a very long debate internally, we decided to call it the year of climate change and health and not climate and health or weather and health because we got to call it what it is. got to bring people to where we are. So sometimes it's okay to go out there and say climate change is happening. It's real. It's happening today. It's impacting our health today, and this is how. And that this is how sometimes is our entree into the various areas that climate change impacts our health. The other school of thinking is you don't have to call it climate change. Just talk about the impacts and talk about solutions. Maybe we want to talk just about farming practices. Maybe we want to talk about reducing pesticide use. Well, you know, if we're going to have continuous high heat weather where it's going to draw in more pests, vector-borne diseases, we're going to have to use more pesticides. And, well, that's going to impact our health, either through runoff or pesticide drift, et cetera. So sometimes it's just talking about the solutions and just bypassing the term climate change if you think your audience is going to alienate you. So ultimately, those two schools of thought really focus on your audience. Know your audience. Know them well enough to know what they're going to listen to and what they may not listen to. And based on that, try to target your approach. Mm Mm-hmm. That's really great advice. I think we have a perfect opportunity to talk about the impacts that we've witnessed and 
talk about some solutions. And I was having a discussion with someone who is working in with local food hubs and regional food systems. You know, the whole farm to table movement has been so strong. And then I think about those areas that have had their regional food systems destroyed by these powerful storms. And then we kind of need a backup plan, don't we? Yes. And if there was only as much attention to food and and where we're getting it from and the safety of it and the quality of it as we do to first responders, then we would be in such a good place. The safety and security of our food is really important to ensuring we're healthy, well-nurtured. And also, you know this, food is a basis for culture. This is how we share our love across the table of food, our connection, our humanity towards one another. So taking that all away not only hurts your health, it also hurts your spirituality and your culture and your sense of community. And so if there was a way that we could capture some kind of assistance when food supplies systems are either disrupted or torn down, then I think we could make a a greater impact in our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. One of the pieces of information that APHA had to do with the idea of losing heritage foods and our cultural foods, as you described. So I'm thinking of perhaps some of the specific grains or fruits and vegetables that are common to a culture in a specific region of the country. But also I think about the fishers in these areas where they're not going to have a coastline and a population that's going to buy their fish. And perhaps those fish might become contaminated due to flood water. So there are so many layers in the food system to help rectify. Oh, absolutely. And as far as the heritage foods that are so deeply rooted into culture, taking those away are just incredibly dangerous to an entire community, and especially I'm talking about Native American communities, Well, they'll end up turning towards nutrient-poor, calorie-rich foods. And then when you see areas that are suffering from contaminated waters and their fish, and, and then we consume them as a community, that can be hurtful in so many different ways. And then if you think about vulnerable populations, especially pregnant or nursing moms who then could pass through their placenta or breast milk to their child, that's also another added layer of risk. Right. Well, I want to ask you, what issues do you want to specifically bring up with regard to climate change for our audience? I was bringing up the ones that I felt were most near and dear to my heart, but Tell me what you think about most and what troubles you in terms of moving forward in this new world where our climate is just not dependable. So I have a lot of concerns, but to synthesize some of them, APHA back in 1923, I believe, published an article that said, if we don't do something in 100 years, climate change is going to impact our health. So fast forward, we're almost 100 years later, and we're seeing those impacts now. It's not, you know, in 50 years, not in 25 years. We're seeing them today. And there's a saying that we have where it's, we're basically the first generation to see the impacts of climate change, but most likely the last generation to do something about it. Wow. And so that's what I grapple with, especially when I have a young son at home and think about him and his future. If I don't do something as an individual, maybe as a community, maybe as a 
as a mom, then where is my son going? And what I find is one of the biggest challenges is that a lot of people are not aware that climate change poses a threat to our health. Hmm. And that lack of awareness leads to sometimes inaction. But there are things that we could do as individuals. There are things we could do as a community. There are things we can do as a government to combat. So it's not gloom and doom only. There are plenty of solutions. And I think those solutions should be acted upon now. I think climate change generally, typically, is blind. It's blind to income. It's blind to race and ethnicity and gender and geography. It might impact you differently, but it will impact you in one way or another. But what isn't as blind and is very inequitable is that some communities aren't as resilient to bounce back from those climate effects. So like we talked about today, some communities aren't going to be able to access fresh, nutritious foods. Well, if you have the means to do it, you may be able to access them sooner than other communities. And so I think it's really important for us to put strategies and solutions in place where all communities can bounce back as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, resiliency is, seems like that's going to be the word of the future. And how do we bounce back? Do you have any ideas or thoughts on how to build resilience into our communities? Yeah, I think we need stronger climate solutions. When it comes to food, I think we need to think about sustainable agriculture practices. I think we need to think about smart subsidies or incentives to economically bring food that's healthy and nutritious to all communities. Mm-hmm. I was reading about resilience oh, probably a year or so ago, and it was really centered on the importance of having strong community linkages, where so often I think our American ideal is that we all function independently. And really to be resilient, it's having these networks and communities and not thinking that we can be self-sufficient, that we really are very much dependent on our neighbors and our larger communities and our public policies. Absolutely. One of the areas we focus on in terms of climate solutions is talking about the socially isolated, Mm. uh, whether you live in a rural area or elderly, for example, and don't necessarily get out as much or have someone to help you when there is a climate disaster, and making sure that we're constantly thinking about community and building a sense of community. So that's certainly a solution that we need to continue to build. Mm-hmm. I bet, you know, you mentioned that you had a young son, and I wonder about how children are reacting to these disasters. And if you turn on the TV, it was similar in 9-11, where physicians were telling parents, don't let your child keep seeing this disaster repeated over and over again. How do we speak to children to comfort them and give them hope for the future? That's a great question, and I think about this a lot. The mental health impacts of climate change is something that we're starting to dive into in adults, and we're seeing crime rates go up whenever there's a climate event, and we're seeing a lot of anxiety and depression in individuals when they lose their job because of injury because of a disaster or their workplace has been shut down or, you know, tons of other reasons. But we're not really looking into children as much at this point, but there has to be some kind of solution and assurance. And what I've seen so far, especially in my son's school, is that 
the teachers and the curriculum is very open to talking about climate change and talking about climate solutions and in you know, training children at a very young age to be environmentally responsible. And I really think that is one way we can help our children understand that climate change is bigger than us, yet there's something that we can do about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to have hopeful messages. And I really like, there's a series of posters that APHA developed, How Climate Change Affects Your Health. Because you mentioned earlier, you know, how people really aren't maybe totally aware about just how much of an impact this is going to have. So you've got a poster on air quality and how that will affect our communities. And, of course, you've got a big poster overall on health, but individually, you know, looking at airborne diseases, vector-borne diseases, looking at uh, rising temperatures and extreme weather and how all of that is going to affect different population groups. And I think it's a really good way to start. I, I love the graphics. Great. Thank you. We're really proud of those. We were trying to capture in a very simple way, the science that is out there through the National Climate Assessment and some of the other federal resources that really spell out that these are the connections from climate change event to our health and that everyone may face it differently based on, you know, whether you have a chronic illness or you're pregnant or you're older or younger. Everyone's going to feel it slightly differently and be a little bit more vulnerable or not to the climate event. And it's really important to to break it down in a way that's not too complicated. And it was really important to us at APHA to make sure that the information is very digestible and understandable. So it's not overwhelming, but it's something that we can relate to. Yeah. And just to be aware overall of what the different impacts were, I was very surprised, for example, to learn that I was looking at the vector-borne diseases and the incidences of Lyme disease have doubled between 1991 and 2013, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that was a function of climate change. The same thing with regard to West Nile virus, we would anticipate that mosquitoes would increase withstanding water, but not so much the tick-borne diseases. So this was really interesting to me. Absolutely. Vector-borne diseases are a very interesting phenomenon that's growing in the country. So what we're seeing is we're seeing warmer temperatures and longer warm seasons. So in areas that we didn't normally see high heat days, we're seeing them. And so these ticks and other vectors are able to spread up north and survive there for a lot longer time. And hikers and folks who who enjoy their time outdoors may not have made this connection um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that they didn't see these ticks or these vectors out there previously, and now they are, they're facing them. And so it's a lot of, you know, a lot of health departments, state and local, are working on messaging about how to go outside and be safe, but also enjoying the outside nature. Mm -hmm. We just have 30 seconds left. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I just want to say thank you for having me on. And I really hope that everyone is inspired to take some action, whether it's calling your congresswoman or man to ask them for climate solutions, or if it's just to be a little bit more conscious in terms of your consumption and output in terms of carbon. Mm. Great. Well, I will make sure that we have a link to the American Public Health Association's main page. If people are so inclined to attend the meeting in Atlanta, that is November 4th through 8th, 2017, I'm sure there will be lots of information forthcoming after that meeting. 
And we will make sure also to provide a link to those beautiful graphics that I think just make everything so clear. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Surili Sutaria Patel, Deputy Director for the Center for Public Health Policy at the American Public Health Association. Thank you so much for being my guest. Pleasure with mine. Thank you.